I want to say a, a welcome to those of you who are watching online, who uh, do so so faithfully, to those of you who are maybe listening to this later in podcast form, uh, to you as well, to those of you who are listening either through Mandarin or Korean translator today as well, and on, on another thank you to our translators who, who work so diligently. Um, one of the activities that our family has really enjoyed on vacation over the years has been camping. I recognize camping is not for everyone, um, but for us, we've had so much fun over the years visiting different campsites. Some of them are government campsites, some of them are private. And a number of years ago, we were in Nova Scotia, and I won't say uh, which campsite we were visiting, uh, but you know, when you go to a campsite, most camping experiences are for people that want to chill. You know, you go camping, there's a few basic rules about noise and maybe, you know, after 11, don't be too rowdy or anything like that. But by and large, camping does not require a lot of rules. Well, we went to this campsite one time, and this is uh, just some of the rules. We started taking pictures of them because we'd never been in a place with so many rules. And there was like rules about how to use the soap and don't move the soap, the little um, sponge that's catching the soap that drips, uh, don't do this, take your shoes off for that. It was just rule after rule after, and it became comical to us because we'd never, ever been in any, I'm sure a surgical unit has fewer rules than this campsite had. And so we just kind of kept going all week, we were taking pictures and we were realizing, I think we're breaking two thirds of all of these rules just our family, on this camping trip. And then I had a moment where I had to go speak to the manager about something, about checkout. So I went to the desk kind of to speak to the owner of the campsite. It was a private campsite. And to have a conversation about some details. And this person was so high-strung and stressed out and on edge about every little thing. And I thought, aha, this person owns this place. And these rules reflect their personality. That these rules actually tell us a little bit about the person that has established this campsite and is running this kind of place. That there was something about the rules and all of the signs. I mean, you know that sign? Song, sign, signs, everywhere, signs. It was written after a visit to this campsite. Um, but there's something about all of these rules that tell us something about the person that issues them. Well, today we continue our series of teachings through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking in chapter 5 today, starting at verse 17. It's on page 1502, if you want to follow along in the Bibles in the seats in front of you, or you can look it up electronically as well. And today we're going to be looking at some of the commandments that Jesus speaks about. I want to suggest to you that the commandments tell us something about the one who gives the commandment. That by looking at the commandments that Jesus issues and kind of upholds for us to look at, he's telling us a little bit about who he is and what it means to follow him. So let's just start. I'm going to read through. We're going to move through a bunch of uh, verses today. I'm going to read a little bit, talk about it, and we'll keep moving on. So let's start at verse 17 and read through to verse 20. Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're going to come back to that later. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments or teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices 
and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless the right, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not certainly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this passage, Jesus is addressing, actually, a question that maybe you have had in your life at some point, if you've been reading through the Bible, which is, what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the law and the prophets? What do we do with these books that sometimes can be so difficult to read? Now, in the Old Testament, kind of had three types of laws. There were the moral laws, like the Ten Commandments, which kind of were rooted in and reflected the character of God. There were civil laws, which is how Israel is to behave as a nation. And then there were ceremonial laws, which are probably the ones that you remember the most because you skipped over them when you were reading the Old Testament about what you can and can't eat, about the kind of cloth that can be sewed together, circumcision, festivals, all those ones. And up to this point, Jesus' followers, or Jesus' people in the Jewish religion, had to keep all three types of laws. The moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. But Jesus is changing things. And as we read in these verses, Jesus now clarifying which laws he has fulfilled. And therefore, the people will no longer be required to live out and, and to keep. And he's going to offer a fuller explanation for them. Now, this was not an easy transition for the Jewish people. It was confusing. And that's why as you read through the New Testament, you see so many verses where Paul and Jesus and James are all helping the disciples try to clarify which rules do we keep and what does it mean for us to keep them now? Because they were wondering, is Jesus saying the Old Testament doesn't matter? Is he dissing Moses? Is he saying it was a waste of time and we never should have had to keep them in the first place? Which maybe you've asked as you've read them as well. Now, verse 17 is the secret here. Jesus uses an important word to describe what he's doing. He says he has come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, the word to fulfill means to bring to a designated end. So he's not saying that these laws never mattered. Rather, he's saying he's brought them to completion. Maybe an analogy will help us discern the difference. Imagine you have a large mortgage on your home. The phone rings someday and it's the bank manager calling, and they have called to let you know they have abolished your mortgage. They've wiped away your debt. You don't have to pay it anymore. And you would say, hallelujah. Now, what the bank has done is just simply erased it. Nobody paid it. They just kind of got rid of it. They wiped it off the books. But imagine if a bank called to you and said this, someone has paid off your mortgage. The debt that you owed has been fulfilled. It's been completed. It wasn't you, but someone else paid your debt on your behalf. This means it was fulfilled. This is the word that Jesus is using here. That there is a moral debt outstanding and that you, someone else has met it on your behalf. And this is why Jesus is such good news. Because while the law helped clarify why we always struggled and it revealed to us that we all have a sin problem, and that while the law helped us kind of manage that sin problem day to day, week to week, it was never dealt with once and for all completely finished. I think about our culture today, so desperately trying to fix things, 
so desperately trying to make the world right, so desperately trying to fix the problems in society, so desperately trying to fix the things that are going on inside of us, looking so desperately for a once and for all solution which seems to evade us. Jesus comes and says, once and for all, the debt that is owed because of your life has been fulfilled. It's been completed. I fulfilled it on your behalf. Meaning this, that when Christ comes and lives perfectly and fulfills the law, when God now looks at us as his followers, he looks at people to whom have kept the law perfectly. That when Jesus looks at you today, if you were a person of faith, what he sees is someone who has kept the law perfectly because of the righteousness of Christ. And then as Christians, that's not the end, that's the beginning. Then the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts and begins that transformation process from the inside out so we actually start to live up to what Christ has accomplished for us. So on one hand, Jesus is saying the law is going to be fulfilled. You don't need to worry about kosher foods and cleanliness anymore. But the moral laws do continue. And he's now going to list six of them. We're going to look at three today and three next week. So let's just keep going. He talks about here in, he talks first about murder in Matthew chapter 5, 21, to, we'll just read to 22. You have heard that it was said, so he's kind of now referring to these Old Testament commands. You've heard it said by Moses, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you. Now, if you're a Jewish person listening to this, immediately you're, you're, a red flag has gone up in your mind. Because normally a Jewish teacher would kind of issue a command and then they'd say, you know, based on this other Jewish person and this great rabbi and this Old Testament passage, they would kind of prove their point with other people's words, not Jesus. He needs nobody else to back up what he's about to say. He just says, I'm telling you. And he says this, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, and is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, the Old Testament rule that says, do not murder, it's no surprise that Jesus kind of backs this up in his teaching. But then he surprises us, because he makes, makes both the commandment and the judgment of it more severe. He moves from stating that the actual act of murder is displeasing to God, and he goes one step further saying that the hateful thoughts that we have towards other people, even though they do not lead to murder, in Jesus' eyes are the root of the problem, and they deserve the same judgment. And immediately the disciples are like, can't we just have the Ten Commandments back, please? What Jesus is essentially saying is that if you want to live a righteous and holy life, it will not be judged solely on your behavior, but what is going on in our hearts. Meaning harmful gossip, telling lies about people, skewering someone's reputation intentionally, plotting revenge all out of anger in Jesus' economy are comparable to the act of murder. That it may not have happened with our hands, but if it happens in here, in Jesus' economy, it's the same. And so whether you murder someone with your hands or with your words or with your judgments or with your attitude, they're equal in Jesus' eyes. And then he offers two examples. He says, imagine you're sitting in church and the offering plate's coming by. 
And suddenly you look over in the corner of your eye and you see that person. <laughs> that person that's been raising their hands in worship and you know they're not very worshipful. You know what they're really like. You know how they treat people at work. You've seen them and how they behave in public. And you're over there and you're just stewing and fuming and you're just like so angry with this person. Jesus says, hold up the service, stop the plate, don't put your money in, go over to that person and reconcile with them. And then he says, if you imagine you're being sued by somebody and you're kind of walking into the courthouse together side by side, before you get through the doors, stop that person and reconcile together before you get in the doors. His point here is this, urgency. That if you have anger living in your hearts, do not let it sit there. Do not let it grow. Do not let it take root. Deal with it and deal with it urgently. And so we ask ourselves, why would Jesus give this command? What does this tell us about what he's like? And it tells us that Jesus wants for you and I inside peace. He wants us to be at peace, not to be living in anger, not to be living in turmoil, not to be dealing with all of these strong emotions that we have for other people. Let's keep reading, because he goes on to adultery. Aren't you glad you came to church on this long weekend Sunday? All right. 27 to 30. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Again, this is the Old Testament commandment. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he kind of comedically says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, get out the hacksaw, cut it off, and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. And if you're a biblical literist, this verse is going to struggle with you because you'll have nothing left by the time you live out your life. This is Jesus' teaching on adultery. Now, he quotes this commandment, again, which was familiar to his listening audience. But Jesus is maturing this teaching, bringing it to its completion, and he extends it by saying, do not have sex with someone that you have not covenanted to in marriage. Marriage is to be a covenant. A Christian covenant ought to be marked and defined by faithfulness. God is in a covenant relationship with us, and he has pledged himself to us unconditionally. We might stray from him, he does not stray from us. We might ignore him for a season, he does not ignore us. Our relationship with God is marked by faithfulness, so our relationships in our marriages ought also to be marked by faithfulness. Sex, then, is the physical action that incarnates that commitment. If I've pledged my heart, my soul, my time, my energy, my money, my calendar, everything I have to you in a covenant then sex becomes the act that kind of lives out that commitment. So when we sleep with someone that we are not covenanted to adultery, we're making a statement with our bodies that we have no intention of keeping with any other part of our lives. We have no plans to be faithful to this person in the long run. We have no plans to leverage everything we have for their flourishing. We don't. It's simply an act which is why sex complicates relationships where there's no commitment. And if you don't believe me, Jerry Seinfeld has a whole episode of Seinfeld about this very topic, and I will send you the link if you need to watch it. Now, 
Jesus' original commandment talked about sex outside of marriage. Jesus now expands this to include lust. And just like his teaching on anger, he says, lust which happens in our mind is the equivalent of adultery itself. Because it's not just our behaviors that matter to the Lord, but it's what's going on inside of our minds and what's going on inside of our hearts. Now, if we're going to have a conversation about lust, we need to have a conversation about pornography. Now, pornography, because of its prevalence in society, and the people just kind of joke about it as if it's normal, people are tempted to say it's not a big deal. But for disciples who want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, it is a big deal. Why? Because pornography over time is discipling you into a certain way of thinking and therefore a certain way of living. And it's contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, all people are image bearers. They have inherent value and they're worthy of respect. Pornography will disciple you to objectify people for your own gratification. In God's kingdom, sex is a selfless act for another person. Pornography turns sex into something that's purely for yourself. And so as disciples, whom God cares not just about how we behave, but what's going on in our minds, we need to pay attention. Let me just make a comment to those of you parents today. That because of the power and prevalence of pornography in our society today, you need to have a conversation with them on a regular basis about how they can avoid and manage this challenge. Make it safe. Make it shame-free. And make it honest. Don't talk as if you've never been tempted about it. Talk to them about, when I'm tempted with it, this is how I respond. This is how I've had success. These have been my failures. Do not leave your kids alone trying to navigate this challenging topic all by themselves. And in the midst of it, bathe it with the grace of God. Now, Jesus recognizes the power of sex and the importance of figuring all this out. So as I said, he comically alludes to the fact that if you're having problems in this area, take severe action. Now, if there's any habits or behaviors in your life today that might need some severe response to keep you from bringing a world of hurt and pain into your life and into the life of your family. If you're flirting with somebody you should not be flirting with. If you're planning your day to spend time with somebody or to keep walking by somebody that you do not need to be walking by. If you're hiding text conversations from your spouse because you don't want them to find out about them, then Jesus would say, sever those things and do it immediately and put an end to them. From my experience, or sorry, um, Jesus' words, he takes these seriously. And why does he give us these rules and these commands? Because he's mean and arbitrary? Or because he wants what's best for us? Because he knows what life truly looks like, and he knows the ways in which we can wander and stray and bring hurt and difficulties into our lives. Well, let's end with a Another light topic, because the next thing that Jesus addresses is the matter of divorce. Let me just read for you. There's two short verses, chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits 
adultery. Now, I know that divorce in particular, especially for previous generations, was a real shameful topic, so it's important that we talk about it here today and visit the words that Jesus um, speaks. I know a number of you here today have been divorced and remarried, and I've had the joy of marrying you in a lovely, lovely ceremony. Let's just acknowledge no one enters into marriage expecting to get divorced. We did a marriage here yesterday, and we went through your normal, lovely, beautiful vows of commitment. I will love you and honor you in sickness and health. And let me tell you what they did not have at the end of their vows. It did not end this way. And if it doesn't work out, we'll get divorced and marry somebody else. That wasn't part of the vows. From my own pastoral experience, people do not get divorced flippantly, but it comes after years of struggling to find a solution. And when it happens, it's a loss, and it's painful, and it needs to be grieved in order for you to be healthy. In premarital counseling with couples, uh, we, there's an analogy that we use that you take two pieces of paper, and to illustrate the coming together, you glue two pieces of paper together. And then divorce, you're trying to separate this. And if you've ever tried to separate two pieces of paper that are glued together, you know they tear. It's messy, and it's complicated. Jesus starts his addressing on this topic by reinstating his original intent. That our marriages are to mirror God's covenant of faithfulness to us. Meaning because God committed himself to us unconditionally and would not abandon us, so that should shape our understanding of how we view our marriages. And that marriage should be an environment of unconditional love that creates safety, equality, honor, and flourishing. That it becomes a place where selflessness thrives. The kind of place where you're working to make sure your spouse has every opportunity to flourish in their life. This is God's intent. And yet, by the third and fourth book of the scriptures, Moses offers an exception in permitting divorce. He creates an exception because he saw how broken marriages could get and how messy and complicated lives get. Just think about that for a second. That Moses, who understood the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Moses, who himself went up on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments, the the new law for a new day, and understood God's covenant faithfulness like no one else, stands before couples and offers an exception. Now, he says here, and Jesus refers to it, that Moses said you needed to give a certificate. Why? Well, in his time, when couples got divorced, it was not like today, and you kind of say, all right, here's 50-50, you take 50, you take 50, and off we go to this next chapter of our life. In the ancient world, only men could issue in a divorce. A woman could not divorce her husband. And what was happening is men were divorcing their wives regularly and often without substantive reasons. And when you, were, when you were divorced in that day, you were abandoned. And you were destined to a life of poverty and oftentimes homelessness because you had kind of no protection, which is part of the ancient world. So by giving a certificate, it was a gracious measure of allowing the wife to remarry again. And so in this context, Jesus offers a word that seems difficult to our ears, but is saying two things. First, Jesus quite shockingly offers an exception for divorce in matters of unfaithfulness. He holds up Moses' words. Second, he reinstates the value of marriage as a covenant. As difficult as marriage is and as complicated as it is, he refuses to kind of water down the expectations. 
He refuses to say it's too hard, so if it doesn't work, no worries. He brings back God's original intent, holds up the beautiful vision of how it ought to be. And I would just say this to you, that after 20-some years of pastoral ministry, having watched couples hit serious issues and serious roadblocks that seem almost insurmountable, and then watching them work away at it with grace and patience, they have been a wonderful and inspiring testimony that these things can be fixed. Now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is teaching about the kingdom of God and what it looks like for you and I as citizens of the kingdom to look like, about how our lives should live. And in some ways, it should captivate our hearts, this vision of beauty and life, that how we treat each other matters. It tells the world something about the God who has called us, that his commandments tell us something about what he himself is like. That we should strive for holiness and obedience, not just in our actions, but in our hearts. That life is a gift, that a gift so sacred that it should not be broken, not just with our hands, but also with our thoughts and with our words. That people are made in God's image. They're not to be coveted or to be objectified in any way. And that God's love for us, his covenant with us, is marked by unprecedented, almost uncomfortable levels of faithfulness. But also as we read these words, we're left asking, who can keep them? Who can live a life free of anger? Free of kind of judging people? Free of just kind of wanting to get revenge? Who can live a life free of lust their entire life? How is it that we can have a society where there's no longer any divorces? It becomes impossible to us. And it leaves us asking, is there any good news for us? And then we come back to verse 17, this beautiful, beautiful verse where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come and I have fulfilled it myself. In other words, if you have struggled in any of these areas, you've struggled with relationships that got damaged because of anger, if you've struggled with lust, if you have a struggle with pornography, if you've had struggles in your marriage, and if you've had marriages that have ended in divorce, is there good news? Yes, because Jesus has come as the one who can live out all these things, and he has fulfilled the requirement of the law by faithfully and beautifully keeping these commands for us when we couldn't keep them. So is there hope? There's always hope because of the grace of God evident in Jesus Christ. And as we close on our service today, we reflect on the gift that God has given to us in fulfilling and fulfilling these commandments because none of us can. He's the God who takes all of our broken pieces and makes them new. Let's pray. God, this morning, we thank you for Christ. For those of us that struggle with anger and feel at times ashamed about it, he is the one who's fulfilled the requirement. Lord, for those of us who struggle with lust, for those of us who've been unfaithful in marriage, for those who struggle in this area and oftentimes feel shame about it, Jesus is the one who fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf. Lord, for those who've had their struggles with marriage, who've had divorce, 
and who've just wondered, Lord, is there any hope for me? There is because of Christ, because he is the one who's fulfilled the requirement for us perfectly. And so, Lord, today we come to you as broken people, grateful of your grace that heals us and restores us.